Sherry, welcome back to the Intoxicated Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for being here with me again. This is an exciting day. We have some exciting news to announce. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I think we're close enough that it's time for us to start talking about our book. Our first book that we've largely worked on together. Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. That's the official title. That's a long title. That's a long, well, yeah, you know, the subtitle is supposed to be very descriptive. Yes. Help people true. make a decision. That's true. But the, the catchphrase that I'm, I, it's gaining momentum. People are starting to tell me that they're excited about it. Sober evolution. That's, yeah. that's kind of our thing, you know? Yep. Trying to help people evolve and find enlightenment. Not just the drinkers, but the, the loved ones. You're laughing. Oh, the word enlightenment. The word enlightenment. Is it because it sounds so arrogant? It sounds arrogant and hippy-dippy and... Yeah. Yeah, I'm so much better than you. Well, but, the book could have been called Sober Enlightenment, but I got so yeah. much negative feedback every time yeah. I use the word enlightenment. So that, that's the reason why I giggle, too, is just because I know the negative feedback. But Yeah. People think I'm quite proud of myself when I talk about quite enlightenment. proud. But Sober Evolution is going to be released right now. The date that is, you know, it's it's mostly not tentative. It's almost <laughs> almost for sure. Mostly not mostly tentative. not tentative is September twenty third, Wednesday, September twenty third, and we'll have, we'll do some pre sale. We'll do some take some pre sale orders of the the hard copy, and those will be um, you know we'll be able to sign and put a little inscription in those. And then uh, we'll also pre-sale the ebook, but then and there'll also be a paperback copy that'll officially be available on September twenty-third. Almost mostly, mostly not, not tentatively date of. So if you're as excited as we are, I hope you are. Keep listening, keep reading. We'll have more information about how you can get your hands on our first little baby, which we're very excited about today. We want to talk about. The impact of all this recovery stuff, not not what Sherry and I are doing, not our impact, your impact. If you are in recovery from alcoholism, either as the drinker or as the loved one of a drinker, which pretty much those two things, you're either a drinker or the loved one of a drinker with, with some problems, that pretty much encompasses, oh, everybody in the world because um, everybody either... Uh, drinks too much or knows somebody who does but but no and seriously if, if you are directly impacted by this disease um, we want you to realize where you are in this process you're having an impact on other people and it's really really important this is what the sober evolution is all about when I first got sober you and I both Sherry we wanted sobriety to fix everything yeah we want, you know, and, and in a way, at least this is the way I thought about it. I thought we deserved to have our life fixed after all the turmoil that we went through with the attempts at controlling alcohol, even though alcohol is really an uncontrollable for anyone, certainly for anyone with an addiction to it, but really 
for many people, it's difficult to control and and takes more effort than should should need to be exerted. Um, but after that, after the turmoil of trying to control it, seeing the things that it allowed me to say to you, seeing the reaction that you had back, the sleepless nights, the unkept promises, the denials, the stress that it put on the family overall, the stress that it put on the kids, just everything, all of the crapola that comes along with active addiction. When it was over, we really, really wanted sobriety to fix everything and we thought we deserved for sobriety to fix everything. And it didn't. In fact, things got worse for a while. And slowly, I worked on my permanent sobriety and figured out what I needed to do there. And slowly, you've been working on your recovery and how can you leave the resentments behind and how can you learn to trust again? There's so many pieces to this. But it's not, there's no switch that you flip. It's not, oh, the alcohol's gone, everything's great. Mm -hmm. But what's frustrating is that is still how the recovery from this disease is judged. You know, when we talk about recovery from alcoholism, everyone thinks of the 12 steps, Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book. The big book, which is what Alcoholics Anonymous is based on, was written over 80 years ago. And it saved millions of lives. And I am, I am a historical fan, meaning I see the value in it. And I'm thankful that it exists and I'm thankful for all the lives that it saved. But, you know, if we were... If we were going to war tomorrow, I wouldn't, and I was all of a sudden a soldier, I wouldn't want a musket or a bayonet no. to take to war. <laughs> so I know that's a bad, that's a crappy analogy. But the point is, 80 yeah. years ago was a long time. Why use something that is really past tense when there's so much research and knowledge and experience and work in this field? Why not update yourself a bit? That's right. It, I mean, Be better prepared. Have better armor. It's scientifically obsolete, just like the musket is. So, I mean, an obsolete is harsh. I know that there are people that for that find a lot of value in the 12 steps that are going to listen to this and well, there needs be repulsed to be by that. A broadening of the big book, maybe. Like lots more editions or, you know. Or more resources beyond more the More resources, book. yes, to, that are added to. It's not the end yes. all be all. I mean, because I know the 12 steps, like, help a lot of people. That's right. They do. Yeah. And they also turn off a lot of people. Right. Right. But, so here's the thing. Not only are we basing the recovery plan on the 12 steps, largely, that's right. that's still the 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 gold standard, I guess you'd say, of recovery. Not only are we still basing recovery on that, but we're also judging success or failure based on a really traditional outlook, a binary choice. Is the person sober or are they not? If they're sober, they're successful. If they're not, they're a failure. And that word failure carries so much weight, so much shame, so much stigma just in the word failure that I really believe, you know, we need to get away from looking at it that way. You and I have talked and talked and talked about how much work was involved in me recovering from my addiction. And we've talked and talked about how much work is involved in us recovering the relationship. 
that is still ongoing. And we've talked and talked about how much work that you have to put in. You you can't just sit back and and all your problems are going to be solved because I stopped drinking. You've got stuff you've got to do. Again, re- resentment, trust issues, actually learning how to like me because you didn't for so long. So there's all this work. And, and, and so recovery is for years, literally years and years. It's a work in progress. But yet, what's the judgment? Yes or no? Sober or not sober? You're a success if you're sober. You're a failure if you're not sober. I mean, that's ridiculous. If someone was training to become an Olympic athlete, you wouldn't call them a failure because they're only two or three years into their training and they haven't reached their potential yet. You would say this person's working hard. They're winning local competitions. They're starting to be competitive in whatever sport that they do. I want to see where this guy's going. And in two or three years, this person might be might be competing in the Olympics. But but we we just don't look at recovery that way. And I think I think the time for the binary description of success or failure is over. I think it's long since been over. So we need to look at it as a work in progress. And so if if sobriety or not sobriety is no longer the way we judge this and this is really important with some of the work that we do sherry we work with the loved ones of alcoholics right mm-hmm. i mean they don't control the drinking or not drinking right they can't decide whether or not their spouse or their son or their father or their uncle or they can't decide whether or not that person drinks all they can control is their ability to heal from that person's abuse of drinking right so the measure that we all talk about uh, success or failure, yes or no, is this person drinking or not drinking? It doesn't even apply to them. And they still have to find well, a way to recover. But I feel like what we've learned in our Echoes of Recovery group and how I felt too was I felt like I had a little bit of influence, not say control, whether or not you were going to drink or not drink, like how much I pushed a situation right. or whatever. So I feel like then when you would drink, I felt like I had done something wrong in that situation or I pushed you to drink and I I owned some of that I for a long time I felt like I was responsible for some of your drinking even though I can't control you I felt like somehow I had influence and I think that's just you know what some of those people in our Echoes of Recovery group carry around too so it's also like teaching them that they weren't in control they really didn't have influence that person was going to get as mad as they wanted and have that beer if they wanted. It was up to them to find out how, when they were going to, you know, break and have a drink. So. Well, that's that's just further evidence of the fact that this measurement system of yes or no, is this person drinking or not drinking, it's ridiculous. And I mean, even though I'm not a big fan of AA, I'm, I'm a fan of people who've recovered from AA for sure. I, I think some wonderful people have done great things after recovering from AA. But even though I'm not a big fan... You know, they they get pretty frequently criticized for having either a single digit success rate or a low teens percentage success rate. And I've even cited that in my writing. I mean, I'll be the first to admit that I've said, I don't know how we can call AAA a success when the recovery rate is in the single digits. But again, that is we're measuring yes or no, sober or not sober. But what about all of the the improvements to people's lives that that fellowship of AA has brought. What about taking someone in, that's gone through the 12 steps and how even if they can't break away from the addiction fully, they are more mindful, they're trying real hard, 
They're making progress. Their family is seeing that. So it's not it's not just a yes or no. There's there's all kinds of progress that gets made along the way. And your example of being the loved one of an alcoholic who takes the hit when their spouse or their loved one drinks, even though it's not their fault, that, that's a perfect example. It's not, you know, we talk all the time with in, in the shout sobriety program with the alcoholics in early sobriety that we deal with. You know, this is a fine line to walk because I, I try not to make it sound like relapse is fine. You can relapse whenever you want, you know, just drink anytime you want. Because that's not a good message. That's not an accurate message. That's not a healing message. But at the same time, when people do relapse, when they when they make a mistake, they they've got three months of sobriety in, and then it all is piling up, and they 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 make some bad decisions as far as you know what they eat and how much rest they get, and they put themselves in stressful situations or whatever. Right? Mm-hmm. Life happens, right, right. and then they drink. That's not failure. That's just part of the healing process. So I know all of a sudden this word has just really kind of been popping into my mind as you've said recovery as a word about eight times in this podcast so far. And I'm not trying to derail it, but remember how we have talked that I don't really like the word recover because like for our relationship, we don't want to recover to go back to where we were because it wasn't a good start. And then you've talked about a healing process and a progress. I feel like it's a transformation, you know, it's a, it's an absolute transformation. So I really kind of hate that word recovery, but you're transforming enlightenment. Sure. It is like an enlightenment. Oh, it's up there with that with me. But I think like a transformation because transformation doesn't happen overnight. Transformation is a long process. Yeah. Like your example of an Olympiad training, like that is a long process. So when somebody makes a mistake, that's part of the learning process and the healing process and the transformative transformative process, I think. Yeah, I bet like an like Olympic I, javelin guy that's trying to be an Olympic javelin, I bet he stabs him. himself in the toe <laughs> once in a while. Yeah. That's not a failure. Now, if I stab myself in the toe, that's a failure. I am done I with the javelin. I was wondering if pole vaulters did that because you know, well, they had to put the pole down. And... I bet pole vaulters have even worse mistakes. I would yeah. not want to be a junior pole vaulter yeah. and just like completely miss the pad you're supposed to land on but dust but you're absolutely right i mean you're gonna make mistakes along the way and it's part of this developmental what that wasn't the word you used what'd you say transformational Transformational process absolutely because what do we know from when we make mistakes if we evaluate them right yeah the best early educators our kids have had have made our kids go back and correct their homework mistakes to find out where they made the mistake. And yeah. then that's, I think you learn more from the mistakes than you learn from your, um... Well, that's Sherry. That, I have to brag. That's why I'm so smart. I've got, I've, because I have <laughs> made so many mistakes. I mean, yeah. so many, like, serious, big-time mistakes that I can't help. No, I don't want to brag. But you know what I'm saying. Right. Yes, we do. Absolutely. If we're paying attention, we learn more from our mistakes. But so what I what I think we sh- we need to do that what this this not only this transfer- transformation which is a better word than recovery not only that but the the transformation in the way we eva- do the evaluation success or failure yes or no drinking not drinking I think one way to do it that really makes sense for me is considering the impact of the progress we're making and when I'm talking about considering the impact 
I'm not just talking about considering the impact on ourselves. Because again, when we've got this binary choice, drinking or non-drinking, as the, the alcoholic, that's a very self felt selfish, inward way of looking at it. Not surprising though, right? The program that we've leaned on for 80 years now to get sober is called Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not about we, us. I mean, I, I suppose it's about an isolated group where where we privately share. Right. But I'm interested in broadening that. Well, in Al-Anon, we learned, you know, that they don't really encourage friendships outside of the group meetings. So then your reputation and your anonymity and will not, you know, overflow. I'm sure that relationships have happened outside of that. But, you know, and then Alcoholics Anonymous, they have their sponsors, but I don't, you know... I don't know how they encourage right. So between other than just the meetings. So between the anonymity and what happens in the room stays in the rooms. All these these um, principles of privacy, which I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. We understand the origin. The idea is if you come and tell us your secret, we'll protect your secret. Trying to encourage people to do that. I think it had its time and place. I just think that time and place is gone. I think recovering out loud has. Uh, exponentially more benefits for society and for the individual than than their anonymity being protected. But because we've always looked at it that way, we've always looked at it as this isolation and privacy, we couldn't help but measure success as has this one human being stayed sober or are they drinking again? But when we broaden it and we look at what impact is my attempt at recovery having on the people around me, we make it more of a communal thing, more of a societal thing, then I think we can be proud of our progress, even if sustained permanent sobriety is, we're not quite there yet. So if it takes three or four or five years to fully recover, and I know there are people that'll, that'll listen to this and say, this guy's nuts, you never fully recover. Right. Or three years, that's, you're just in the baby steps of it. You're not a recovered alcoholic or, you know, in recovery or. But, but, but I believe that we can move past this disease and put our, I I don't think we can ever drink again. I don't want to, I don't want to confuse anyone. I don't think you ever reset your brain. Like that's nuts. That does not happen. You can't, I mean, you can go 20 years without drinking. And if you start drinking again, you're right back where you were before. But. We can put that disease in remission and move on and lead a fully productive, healthy life that doesn't isn't warped by the alcoholism anymore. Yeah. So, or you but, live in a "woe is me" sort of state and feel like you're different than everybody else because I feel like there's a lot of shame that can go with that. Well, and that's what we want to help people get away from. And that, and but Sherry, that's it, right? Leaving the "woe is me" thing behind. That's part of what takes a few years mm-hmm. for maybe some people do it faster uh i know that the you know the clock is not set the same for everyone i know that for sure but for whatever period of time it takes you to get to a really comfortable place with either your recovery as the alcoholic your loved one's recovery or the relationship recovery which are in my opinion three separate things however long it takes to get to that that comfortable place it's not like you're a failure, 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 and then all of a sudden you're a success. You're having an impact along the way, uh, not only on yourself, but on others. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about. 
I mean, the first thing that you do when you're attempting sobriety, you are you might be struggling, you're white knuckling it, you're trying to figure out your program. In my case, tons of bibliotherapy, learning about nutrition, uh, learning about brain chemistry. All of this stuff is happening, but here's the thing I wasn't doing anymore while I was while I was doing my work in early, early sobriety. I wasn't making things worse. I wasn't telling you, hey, let's go to this neighborhood party. We'll leave at nine and then staying till one in the morning anymore. Something that I used to do. I wasn't on Sunday afternoons drinking and getting irritable because the work week was about to start and picking silly fights with you or just sulking and being detached and having everyone in the family, kids included, think, God, just stay away from dad right now. I wasn't doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. I was still doing some moping in early sobriety, yeah. but I was much more approachable. I wasn't spending a ton of money on booze and having you know, beer cans or beer bottles all over the house that everyone could see, oh, stay away from dad. The, the pile of beer bottles is getting tall. I wasn't you know, blowing things off or, or avoiding interaction with people. I wasn't calling you despicable, awful names. I, I wasn't waking up early on Monday morning and needing sexual comfort from you, which was just not at all appropriate or what you had in mind. I wasn't doing all the things that I did while I was drinking. So even in the earliest part of sobriety, when you're trying and, and you're you know, you've got to gauge the success at that point as being less than 50%. There is a less than 50% chance that this person's going to make it. They're just, they're just getting their feet wet. At least at that point, you're not making things worse anymore. And that has an impact. That has an impact on lots of people around you. In, in my case, it had an impact on you and our kids. Mm-hmm. To a lesser degree, our parents who occasionally were roped in, they might have been like, all right, well, he's not drinking right now. We don't know. What the future holds, but for right now, we can all take a sigh of relief, take a deep breath. So I, I don't think we can discount that. I, I think that impact that we're having early on is really important. Um, you know, another impact that happens, especially in relationship recovery, we talk about this all the time, Sherry, it's, it's breaking the cycle. Mm-hmm. Like in our family... You know, I I come from, on my side of the family, alcohol is an important component and has been as far back as I am familiar with what those generations, what their lives have been like. So the men specifically have always been big drinkers and sometimes the women are too. Alcohol is celebratory. It's a status symbol. It it comes out when it's time to relax. There's no five o'clock in my family. It's I mean, I guess noon is kind of the the barrier to entry, and even that gets gets you know sometimes it's eleven, but um, it's just a sign of uh, success and relaxation and enjoyment and free time and all these things. Well, when I start trying to get sober, we start to break that cycle generationally. Our our kids don't automatically think, oh, it's noon on a Saturday, it's time to drink because their their dad stops doing that. And we and we break the cycle on the other side too. Um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, you you had a father who was an alcoholic. You yeah. had a husband who was an alcoholic. A lot of your reactions to the men in your life are based on 
alcoholism. Yeah. And and as soon as I start at least trying to get sober, you're able to slowly start to pull away from having those reactions and the frustrations and start to show the kids a different relationship and show the kids, um, you know, that, that you can live without having these, these walls built up to protect yourself. So again, it's having impact on the next generation more than just, more than just me and you. And more certainly more than just me when I'm when I'm trying not to drink. Well, and as being a father, um, and you were quitting drinking at a time when our kids were, you know, one was already a teen and going into the teen world like that, breaking that cycle of of what we learned and how it impacts the brain and passing that information along. To yeah. Hopefully educate our kids that you know, that there is such a misnomer about alcohol and yeah they're like oh teens you know they shouldn't be drinking and but then you know then the parents are so like we're putting our money where our mouth is by saying yeah we're not wanting you to drink because we know the bad things so we're not drinking ourselves right and we're not using it to you know be a resource for celebration or comfort or you know and anxiety relief and and even when dealing I'm dealing with the real world, and even while I'm battling to get my neurotransmitter function to repair, and there's not a lot of joy in my life, and there's all this depression and anxiety for the first year or so of early sobriety, even while all that's still taking place. So we're a long way from calling me a success. We're teaching our kids things that they would otherwise have never learned, right? Like you just described. So we're having that impact way before, you know, we can. It, it has nothing to do with success or failure in recovery in the yeah. traditional sense. Yeah. The impact is there. Yeah. You know, another thing that we did probably in our second year of recovery was, was when we, we rolled up our sleeves and we really started working on the resentments that had built up in our relationship. And for alcoholic relationships, this is a universal thing. This is not just you or me, you and me, or, you know, rarely rare cases or occasional cases. This is, you know, I know it's anecdotal. I don't have scientific evidence, but it's a hundred percent of the relationships in alcoholism are dealing with resentments. The, the, the loved one, the non-drinker is just resentful of all the things that have built up and been taken away from them. And when you and I started to talk about that, talk about the resentments and bring those barriers down and address it, that had a side effect. Not only were we addressing the specific problem, which is, you know, on August 14th, 2011, I did this awful thing and I blacked out and I don't remember the details and you're filling in the details and we're getting on the same page. I'm apologizing and I'm acknowledging your pain, doing all the things that we've talked about that have to happen to repair the resentments. But you and I are also building a new way to communicate. Often bringing things up to me, especially when I was drinking or when I had alcohol as a part of my life, was really hard because you never knew what reaction you were going to get, right? Right. I mean, sometimes I'd fly off the handle. Sometimes I would act like it's no big deal. Sometimes I would apologize. Sometimes I would blame you. 
Mm-hmm. So as we're going through these resentments, just the communication between two married people is going to a place where it, it really, frankly, should be, should be all the time yeah. between married people. So, so again, that's another impact of the progress that we're making. Our communication got better way, way, way before we were healed, way before we could just check the box and claim success uh, as a part of the process. The communication got better. And I think that's a huge impact. That's really important. Friendships are another one that I want to talk a little bit about. Friendships are tough. When a person or a loved one or a couple is in recovery, the friendship's dynamic with outsiders, that, that changes. For the drinker, you certainly... in in my case, and I think in a lot of examples that we're familiar with, you're going to lose some friends mm-hmm. who really, the friendship was just, it was just an excuse to drink. It was based on alcohol consumption. Right. You're going to strengthen some friendships, often in places you didn't expect, often with people who are also battling alcohol, but often with people who are battling something else entirely. Yeah. Yeah. They're just struggling. And, and if you are willing to talk about what's going on with you and admit that alcohol is a huge negative in your life and that you're not going to consume it anymore, you can find really strong relationships there. I think for the loved ones, it's even trickier. And here's why. If, if, if you are married, for instance, to an alcoholic and that alcoholic is not in the mood to quit drinking or they have quit drinking and they don't, they still want to keep that secret private because they're so filled with shame about their alcoholism, then your ability to improve your friendships, to really lean on your friendships is stifled because either they're still drinking and you're embarrassed that they're still drinking and you're full of shame for the the predicament that you're in. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want to share with your friends what's going on or if they're in early sobriety but they're still very private about it, your story is not your story. You don't own your story. You can't tell your story because if you do, you're outing this alcoholic that's either in recovery or not who wants you to keep their privacy. So it's way, way, way different for the loved ones of alcoholics because the reputation of somebody else is on the line. Mm-hmm. And that's. I think this is a good point in this discussion to to mention our Echoes of Recovery program. You brought it up a little bit earlier, Sherry, but this is a, a group of just wonderful, loving human beings who are in that predicament of loving someone who abuses alcohol. We've got people in the group that are, their, their loved one is in sobriety. We've got people in the group whose loved one is trying to quit or contemplating quitting. We've got people in the group whose loved one will never quit. They're going to drink to their grave and it just is what it is but in any of those three scenarios the person who's not the drinker but loves this person who's abusing alcohol they've got to find resources and recovery for yeah. themselves yeah and an outlet well that's just it if if you're trying to protect the reputation of this drinker and you can't talk to your friends who can you talk to mm-hmm. so that's what we're there for that this is all about connection shared experiences I think the the most common feedback that we get from people in the group is that they 
they thought they were alone. And now, even though the specific stories might be different between themselves and other people in the group, the underlying facts are all the same. They're all in the same boat. Yeah. And wasn't that, I mean, when when we first started um, bringing together these people in Echoes of Recovery, you, I, I know I did, you had a similar kind of realization, didn't you? I, I think by that point, you didn't think you were alone. Yeah, because I had, after you kind of outed yourself as an alcoholic publicly or on email, um, I had already kind of alluded to um, a friend, you know, that I could kind of, I could kind of understand that she was in the same boat as I was Uh with alcoholic husbands. And so I felt like she was the only person that I could reveal just a tiny bit. Right. You know, um, but then I, you know, it really made a, another friendship really strong because she was on your email list and confided in me that she was in a similar situation. So I knew I wasn't alone and also having my sister who was married to an alcoholic and right. my mother who was married. So I knew I wasn't alone, but then um, just find, just hearing all of the little details about some things from the people in this Echoes of Recovery group, like finding out just things that you wouldn't come up with in general conversations and like we have topics that we talk about or write about in Echoes of Recovery. So... I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, that I, I understand that. So it's all these little nuances that like kind of are so it's compelling to figure out like that you really have so much similarities. Yeah. And like our codependent behaviors yes. and our our lack of self esteem, you know, that it's just you know, it's amazing. And it's a good place for resources too, to like read other books or hear podcasts or yeah. that we all share. So yeah, I didn't feel like I was completely alone. But I also kind of felt like I was a little bit maybe bitchy or crazy and I was exaggerating a lot of my feelings. And then I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm no, not. But the overwhelming evidence is pretty clear. Yeah, because these two ladies that I had known, you know, before we started Echoes, like I find them to be very calm, mm-hmm. level-headed, good people that are so generous. And I just felt like, boy, I'm just a nagging bitch and I'm expecting way too much out of life or out of my relationship. or Yeah. Or, you know, I'm just crazy. But then you realize there's lots of other people expecting the same thing. Which, yeah. Who, if you are crazy, are equally crazy. Yeah. So you're probably not any of you crazy. Exactly. So if you're in one of those situations where you're trying to get better and you're trying to move on, but you can't talk to your friends about it because it's not your story alone. It's your story and the drinker that you love. Then we encourage you to check us out. Check out Echoes of Recovery because this is a place where you can find that connection and we'll, uh, we'll protect your you know your privacy or the privacy of your loved one, um, but you can still find healing. So check out echoesofrecovery.com, E-C-H-O-E-S of recovery.com. We'd love to have you join us. Yeah, I guess I didn't really understand the empowerment of the Facebook group that both programs have either to throw out a topic and have people on this private Facebook, you know, for the shout sobriety alcoholic side and the, the loved ones side. I feel like it's, it was a lot more of a, um, vulnerable state to be with people in the same boat as you. Yeah. 
And I didn't think that Facebook could give me that kind of feeling of comfort. Yeah. Yeah, you just used the word vulnerable, and that, that's one of the other impacts that I want to talk about. When, when we, specifically with our families, not just you know you and me, Sherry, and not even just our kids, but extending that a little bit with our parents and our, our siblings, your, your, sis, your sister and my sister, when the reality of what we were going through kind of came out, and became semi-public knowledge, I think I think it has an impact on our family relationships. That's that's kind of cool. You know, I, I, I feel like the, there's a lot of... Once you don't live with somebody and once everyone involved is an adult, there's a lot of kind of superficial interaction that takes place with families. Maybe like in our case, you get together a couple times a year. It's very vacation-y, very festive. You're trying to spend time together, but you're also trying to relax, be entertained, do some fun stuff. Catch up. And there's, you know, just there's not what the kids are doing. Right. But there's not a ton of depth to that. Right. I mean, I think that's a very common trap, if you will, to fall into. I think that's a very common pattern. Mm-hmm. And Especially then, when you don't live close to each other, so you're not involved. Yeah, you're not in like, the day-to-day. we're miles and states apart from our family, so we're not there day-to-day. That's right. That's right. It'd be different if you were close proximity. Day-to-day. But when something like alcoholism happens and the recovery from alcoholism happens and it's you know, not necessarily even public, but it's public enough that the extended family knows about it. It creates that vulnerability creates this sense of let's, all right, let's be real with each other. Let's have real open, honest communication. And I think other things can benefit if, if you've got a different problem, a different health problem, or if you're having trouble with one or more of your kids, you know, cause raising kids is hard. I think it just paves the path for better, more open relationships in other ways. Because as soon as one person shows up vulnerable and shows their weak underbelly, you know, your two options are to stab them in their weak underbelly (laughs) or to show yours too, Mm -hmm. or to at least consider showing yours too. And when you're family, you're probably not going to stab each other in the weak underbelly. You're probably going to start to show yours a little bit. So I just think that that is a potential benefit, a potential impact that takes place. And when I'm talking about you're talking about your shit and you're being vulnerable, that is a long way from success. You don't you don't first do that. I mean, some people do, but you don't first do that five years into sobriety when you say, oh, I got this thing licked. Let me tell you about all the stuff that's happened these last five years. Normally, this kind of extended family is involved with you along the road. And so going back to that definition that I hate of success or failure, that binary, is he drinking or isn't he drinking, you know, that's, that's, that's gross. That's awful. Like, let's get rid of that way of evaluation and let's evaluate the impacts along the way. And these extended family relationships, even when it's pain that you're going through, they can really strengthen. There are, you know, there are people that you and I work with in in this field of recovery that I can I can think of specific examples that make me want to cry right now where the pain of going through this 
has made the relationship stronger. It, Sherry's handing me the Kleenexes that she has to always keep right next to her <laughs> when we do these because she usually cries. She's excited to see me near tears. Um, but so, yeah, like it's not just it's not just success or failure. It's what kind of relationship improvements are we making along the way. And that's that's not just the direct husband and wife. That's the extended family too. Let's get everyone in the pool working on this together. And when we do, we're being more human with each other. Now, Sherry, I want to talk about sex. I know how much you get excited when I want to talk about sex on the podcast. Um, I, and I'm not here to tell everyone the solution to recovering the intimate portion of a marriage that's in recovery. Because you and I are still working on it. This is very much a work in progress. But what I'm excited about is that we are really legitimately trying to figure this out. Sex in an alcoholic marriage is just dysfunctional for one of two reasons. Either uh, it goes away and the two, the, the couple just stop having sex. And, and honestly, that's probably the healthier way to deal with sex in an alcoholic relationship. Or they do what you and I did, which is continue along as though everything's okay and continue to have intimate contact even though there is no intimacy. And that just drives a wedge and makes it worse and makes it worse and makes it worse. And then you're left to pick up the pieces. And the picking up the pieces is the thing that you and I are in the process of doing. And so I don't have a ton to say about it. And I can see from your face you have nothing to say about it. I would say... The correction would be, we weren't having intimate contact without intimacy. We were having sexual relations without any intimacy. You don't think intimate contact without intimacy is... I don't think that it would be. Okay. I I mean, I think that it was a sexual experience. Yes. Without any of the intimacy. Agreed. So I wouldn't, but... Yeah, so we're trying to fix that. And, you know, if, if I had never gotten sober and you had never worked on your issues... We never would have fixed the intimacy. And so, again, progress. We are having an impact because we are trying. And, and I am I know I'm an optimist, but I am confident we're going to get there. And I feel like we're on the right path now, finally. But it, it's something that if you stay alcoholic, if you stay actively alcoholic, or if if you don't, bring some attention to it, it just never gets fixed. You just have this miserable, awful, you know, shameful sex life till you die. And so Or no sex life till you die. Yeah. You're that couple. That sounds pretty bad too. Yeah. So so you're making an impact. The progress of recovery is making an impact. And that's another another example. So yeah, what was the word used earlier? Transformational? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Transformational, transformative, trans- transcendent. Transcendence, oh, enlightenment. That's transcendence. No, can't go there. That's too much, isn't it? Too much. Yeah. Um, how about Sober Evolution, the name of our book? Yeah, I think that's good. That's This is part of the Sober Evolution. Well, because I mean, but, it's not even like for people who are alcoholics too. I just think like, you know, when... <laughs> Gosh, it was a while ago, and 
like one of your first attempts of sobriety, um, I remember reading a book and it kind of talked about evaluating whether your loved one or you abuse alcohol or you're a true alcoholic. And most generally, those people that abuse alcohol tend to, they will then progress into full-blown alcoholism. So Sober Evolution, just trying to like put a cap on it before you even get to this point in the the second book that I read about this um, abuse versus alcoholism is like if you can stop it early and so it's just I think that's really good and like we're doing with our kids hopefully we're going to try to discourage them from even you know using alcohol Um, because it's so just like we would any other drug right because it's so societally you know approved of but really it's just the alcohol industry and the marketing industry that's making money off of our human weaknesses and you know so absolutely you know even if you aren't a drinker heavily or just living a more sober honest life without a chemical you know helping you get through those tough times or celebrate and having your real true feelings yeah no, absolutely right. One of the the podcasts that I listen to the most consistently is Dax Shepard, Armchair Expert, it's called. And Dax is big on talking about incentive. So if we want to change, and, and, and his podcast isn't specifically about addiction, just anything we want to change, because we're human, we need incentive in order to go there. And I think that's one of the struggles with alcoholism, recovery, and repairing an alcoholic marriage. We don't, we don't focus enough on the end game. So the alcoholic just says, yeah, I could quit, but then my life's going to be boring, and maybe my wife will be less of a nag, maybe I'll have less depression. But if I drink, I get to party and be carefree in my my insecurities don't haunt me so i'm just going to keep drinking and i think what we don't do enough time talking about and explaining and and really highlighting is that there is a huge incentive to long-term sobriety this the incentive is portrayed on instagram and facebook as Oh, I woke up and I felt great. What a beautiful day. I'm going to go look at a flower now. (laughs) Or I'm going to go pet a puppy dog. Yay, me. And I think think that rainbows and unicorns. Flowers and puppy dogs. Yeah, all of that social media stuff. I think it's another area where social media is doing nothing but a disservice to us in our human lives. Because you can only wake up with that attitude so many days I mean you're still human even if you're trying to get sober and you're still going to wake up in a bad mood you're still going to wake up with the mortgage that you don't have enough money for and you're still going to wake up with you know your kid drove his bicycle into somebody's car in the neighborhood (laughs) which brand new car that happened to us (laughs) he's fine by the way but life still happens and you know if if that's the full extent of your incentive that you think every day you're going to wake up rosy right you are you're hosed because yeah. you're going to wake up in a bad mood sometimes well, yeah that's just not reality so i think the other thing is if your incentive for quitting 
involves <laughs> traditional phrases or thoughts, thought patterns like, you know, if I take a drink, I'm going to die. Or, you know, one isn't enough and a thousand is too many. <laughs> or, you know, even just this the one day at a time. There's, we're just lacking an incentive there. We're not, like, we can't keep our eye on this prize of what long-term permanent sobriety really means. For me, I've never been a one-day-at-a-time guy. I, I don't want to have to fight this every day. That sounds miserable. I want to set my mind on a goal and go get it. And, and I know that that's a controversial thing to say. I understand that. But when the incentive is, let me just get through today and then I'll deal with tomorrow tomorrow, I mean, what's that? What's How is that going to make somebody say, get real fired up about recovery right. and say, this is what I want for myself and my family? I mean, it definitely holds, you know, a place like if you're going through chemotherapy. Sometimes all you can do is just trying to get through one day at a time. But like having a loftier goal of ultimate sobriety or entire lifetime of sobriety I think there should be loftier goals and you know go higher than just one day at a time so when you talked about transformation the thing that you're transforming into that's got to be the goal and the the dark muddy mucky sludgy path that you have to follow to get there that part's hard where you're making progress where you're making an impact, but you're not there yet. That part's hard, but there's got to be an incentive to go through that. Because if there's not, why on earth would you do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my life's miserable. I drink a lot. I'm sad. But I don't see much of an alternative, so I'm just going to keep doing this. Because at least I get that momentary pleasure when I first start drinking that my insecurities go away. If, if we don't paint this picture of something that's better than petting a puppy dog that's your goal, then why would anyone work for it? The Olympic athlete works for, you know, personal achievement, but also the glory, right? And the gold medal or or just being the best that they can possibly be. That, I mean, that's that's got to be the goal of alcoholism recovery, being the best you can possibly be for the alcoholic and the loved ones as well. Again, the reason you and I don't like the word recovery is because we're not going back to something that we had before. I don't want to go back to when I was, you know, 22 and overweight because I ate a ton of pizza and drank a bunch of beer and, and you know, I didn't have lofty aspirations. I just wanted to get a, get a degree and get a job and keep being able to drink. Like I I'm not trying to go back to there, my pre-alcoholic stage when when my my goals and my life were not anything to aspire to i want to be better than i've ever been and i want our relationship to be better than i've ever been and that's got to be what we're trying to do in recovery not just try to get back to to something that's okay we got to be targeting something that's great and if you look at it that way then i think you're more capable or more Likely or incentivized, I, I guess. Get her say incentivized to put in the work. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing: we talked earlier about how, you know, especially in our Echoes of Recovery group, we've got people whose loved one is trying to get sober, and we've got people whose loved one is not trying to get sober. 
in order to get to this really good place in in a relationship, everyone's got to be on the same page. Both you and I have to be on board with this thing that we're trying to achieve. Otherwise, you know, we're not putting in the effort to fix the resentments. We're not putting in the effort to rebuild the trust. We're not putting in the effort on the sex life. We're not putting in the effort certainly on sobriety. But if you are, and we're both pulling in the same direction, I can already see that the place that we're going is going to be really special. And it's a place that if you have never had major trauma in your life, you can't get to. Does that make sense? Hmm. I guess, but you should probably explain. So if you just have, if you have a relationship and you've never been through anything, you're not going to be able to appreciate the work that it takes to dig out of that hole. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to become an alcoholic so that they can become this better thing after alcoholism. Or everyone has to go through a really bad form of cancer so that they can get to this great place after cancer. But life is funny. Once you get into your 40s and 50s, almost all the time you're going to have gone through something really traumatic. And surviving it and coming out the other side, if you do it right and work hard at it, can be a blessing that's really hard to match. But the progress you make along the way cannot be understated. It's and it's it's not a failure until suddenly it's a success. It's progress. It's transformation and it is having an impact on yourself and those around you. And that's pretty much what I wanted to talk about today. So are you happy with our progress, Sherry? Yeah, sometimes I'm impatient. But, you know, it's a process. It takes a while. You um, can't force, you know, changes necessarily. You have to let it do its work. So, but I'm, I'm pretty happy about it. I think that's why the name Sober Evolution is so descriptive. Because it's not, it's not a revolution. You're not, because you can't force it. You're not just going to make all these changes in a week because you're determined to do it. Mm-hmm. you got to let it evolve. Yeah. you got to let it come to you. Sometimes you backslide. Sometimes and you, you backslide. Learn from it and figure out what it was, and then you go forward again. Yep. And sometimes you make that exact same mistake again. Yeah. Cause Try not to make it seven or eight times. you're stubborn like me. <laughs> you're stubborn and not just you. Willful and... <laughs> I mean, I'm the alcoholic. How many times did I say, uh, I'm going to st- try to drink again, but this time I'm going to control it. I got it this time, yeah. Sherry. Don't worry. So yeah, a lot of stubborn well, you don't insanity. have to be an alcoholic to be stubborn and willful and yeah, controlling. It's, we, named, we know that. We named the book Sober Evolution. We could have very easily named it uh, Stubborn Insanity. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that that's as inspirational as yeah. Sober Evolution. So rather than focus on the negative, even though that is a part of our story. Speaking of our story, if this is helpful to you, if the Intoxicated Podcast is something that you're getting something out of, we would certainly appreciate your support. To keep this mission alive, we are a fully tax-deductible nonprofit 501c3 company, and so your contributions to us um, have tax benefits for you and keep us going. So if you'd like to contribute, you can do so at 
thestigma.com slash donate. And we'd be very appreciative. So for my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thank you for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast, and we'll be back with you shortly. Shortly.